Chapter Five, Section Two, of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Five, Section Two, The Development of the Business Specialist. Before seeking to trace the consequences and the significance of this specialized organization of American practical affairs, we must examine its origin with some care. An exact and complete understanding thereof will, in itself, afford an unmistakable hint of the way in which its consequences are to be appraised, and, wherever necessary, corrected. The great and increasing influence of the new unofficial leaders has been due not only to economic conditions and to individual initiative, but to the nature of our political ideas and institutions. The traditional American theory was that the individual should have a free hand, in so far as he was subject to public regulation and control, such control should be exercised by local authorities, whereof the result would be a happy combination of individual prosperity and public weal. But this expectation, as we have seen, has proved to be erroneous. While it has, indeed, resulted in individual prosperity, the individual who has reaped most of the prosperity is not the average, but the special man, and however the public may have benefited from the process, the benefit is mixed with so many drawbacks, that even if it may not be wholly condemned, it certainly cannot be wholly approved. The plain fact is that the individual in freely and energetically pursuing his own private purposes, has not been the inevitable public benefactor, assumed by the traditional American interpretation of democracy. No doubt he has incidentally accomplished, in the pursuit of his own aggrandizement, certain manifest public benefits, but wherever public and private advantages have conflicted, he has naturally preferred the latter. And under our traditional political system there was, until recently, no effective way of correcting his preference. As long as the economic opportunities of American life consisted chiefly in the appropriation and improvement of uncultivated land, the average energetic man had no difficulty in obtaining his fair share of the increasing American economic product, but the time came when such opportunities, although still important, were dwarfed by other opportunities incident to the development of a more mature economic system. These opportunities, which were, of course, connected with the manufacturing, industrial, and technical development of the country, demanded under American conditions a very special type of man, the man who could bring to his task not merely energy, but unscrupulous devotion, originality, daring, and in the course of time, a large fund of instructive experience. The early American industrial conditions differed from those of Europe, in that they were fluid, and as a result of this instability, extremely precarious. Rapid changes in markets, business methods, and industrial machinery made it very difficult to build up a safe business. A manufacturer or a merchant could not secure his business salvation, as in Europe, merely by the adoption of sound conservative methods. The American businessman had greater opportunities and a freer hand than his European prototype, but he was also beset by more severe, more unscrupulous, and more dangerous competition. The industrious and thrifty farmer could be tolerably sure of a modest competence, due partly to his own efforts and partly to the increased value of his land in a more populous community, but the businessman had no such security. In his case, it was war to the knife. 
he was presented with a choice between aggressive daring business operations and financial insignificance or ruin no doubt this situation was due much to the temper of the american businessman as to his economic environment american energy had to be consecrated to economic development the businessman in seeking to realize his ambitions and purposes was neither checked by government control nor social custom he had nothing to do and nothing to consider except his own business advancement and success he was eager strenuous and impatient he liked the excitement and the risk of large operations the capital at his command was generally too small for the safe and conservative conduct of his business and he was consequently obliged to be adventurous or else to be left behind in the race he might well be earning enormous profits one year and skirting bankruptcy the next under such a stress conservatism and caution were suicidal it was the instinct of self-preservation as well as the spirit of business adventure which kept him constantly seeking for larger markets improved methods or for some peculiar means of getting ahead of his competitors he had no fortress behind which he could hide and enjoy his conquests surrounded as he was by aggressive enemies and undefended frontiers his best means of security lay in a policy of constant innovation and expansion moreover even after he had obtained the bulwark of sufficient capital and more settled industrial surroundings he was under no temptation to quit and enjoy the spoils of his conquests the social intellectual or even the more vulgar pleasures afforded by leisure and wealth could bring him no thrill which was anything like as intense as that derived from the exercise of his business ability and power he could not conquer except by virtue of a strong tenacious adventurous and unscrupulous will and after he had conquered this will had him in complete possession he had nothing to do but to play the game to the end even though his additional profits were of no living use to him if however the fluid and fluctuating nature of american economic conditions and the fierceness of american competitive methods turned business into a state of dangerous and aggressive warfare the steady and enormous expansion of the american markets made the rewards of victory correspondingly great not only was the population of the country increasing at an enormous rate but the demand for certain necessary products services and commodities was increasing at a higher rate than the population the american people were still a most homogeneous collection of human beings they wanted very much the same things they wanted more of these things year after year and they immediately rewarded any cheapening of the product by buying it in much larger quantities the great business opportunities of american life consisted consequently in supplying some popular or necessary article or service at a cheaper price than that at which any one else could furnish it and the great effort of american businessmen was of course to obtain some advantage over their competitors in producing such an article or in supplying such a service the best result of this condition was a constant improvement in the mechanism of production cheapness was found to depend largely upon the efficient use of machinery and the efficient use of machinery was found to depend upon constant wear and quick replacement by a better machine but while the economic advantage of the exhausting use and the constant improvement of machinery was the most important economic discovery of the american businessman he was also encouraged by his surroundings to seek economies in other and less legitimate ways it was all very well to multiply machines and make them more efficient 
but similar improvements were open to competitors. The great object was to obtain some advantage which was denied to your competitors. Then the businessman could not only secure his own position, but utterly rout and annihilate his adversaries. At this point the railroads came to the assistance of the aggressive and unscrupulous businessman. They gave such men an advantage over their competitors, by granting them special rates, and inasmuch as this practice has played a decisive part in American business development, its effect and its meaning, frequently, as they have been pointed out, must be carefully traced. The railroads themselves are, perhaps, the most perfect illustration of the profits which accrue in a rapidly growing country from the possession of certain advantages in supplying to the public an indispensable service. They were not built, as in most European states, under national supervision and regulation, or according to a general plan which prevented unnecessary competition. Their routes and their methods were due almost entirely to private enterprise and to local economic necessities. They originated in local lines radiating from large cities, and only very slowly did their organization come to correspond with the great national routes of trade. The process of building up the leading systems was, in the beginning, a process of combining the local roads into important trunk lines. Such combinations were enormously profitable, because the business of the consolidated roads increased in a much larger proportion than did the cost of financing and operating the larger mileage, and after the combinations were made, the owners of the consolidated road were precisely in the position of men who had obtained a certain strategic advantage in supplying a necessary service to their fellow countrymen. Their terminals, rights of way, and machinery could not be duplicated except at an increased cost, and their owners were in a position necessarily to benefit from the growth of the country in industry and population. No doubt their economic position was, in certain respects, precarious. They did not escape the necessity, to which other American business enterprises had to submit, of fighting for a sufficient share of the spoils. But in making the fight, they had acquired certain advantages which, if they were intelligently used, would necessarily result in victory, and as we all know, these advantages have proven to be sufficient. The railroads have been the greatest single source of large American fortunes, and the men who control the large railroad systems are the most powerful and conspicuous American industrial leaders. Important, however, as has been the direct effect of big railroad systems on the industrial economy of the country, their indirect effects have probably been even more important. In one way or another, they have been the most effective of all agencies, working for the larger organization of American industries. Probably such an organization was bound to have come in any event, because the standard economic needs of millions of thrifty Democrats could, in the long run, be most cheaply satisfied by means of well-situated and fully equipped industrial plants of the largest size, but the railroad both hastened this result, and determined its peculiar character. The population of the United States is so scattered, its distances so huge, and its variations in topographical level so great, that its industries would necessarily have remained very local in character, as long as its system of transportation depended chiefly upon waterways and highways. Some kind of quick transportation across the country was, consequently, an indispensable condition of the national organization of American industry and commerce. The railroad not only supplied this need, but coming as it did pretty much at the beginning of our industrial development, 
it largely modified and determined the character thereof. By considerably increasing the area within which the products of any one locality could be profitably sold, it worked naturally in favor of the concentration of a few large factories in peculiarly favorable locations, and this natural process was accelerated by the policy which the larger companies adopted in the making of their rates. The rapid growth of big producing establishments was forced, because of the rebates granted to them by the railroads. Without such rebates, the large manufacturing corporation controlled by a few individuals might still have come into existence, but these individuals would have been neither as powerful as they are now, nor as opulent, nor as much subject to suspicion. It is peculiarly desirable to understand, consequently, just how these rebates came to be granted. It was, apparently, contrary to the interest of the railroad companies to cut their rates for the benefit of any one class of customers, and it was, also, an illegal practice which had to be carried on by secret and underhanded methods. Almost all the state laws under which corporations engaged in transportation had been organized had defined railways, like highways, as public necessities. Such corporations had usually been granted by the states the power to condemn land, and the delegation of such power to a private company meant, of course, that it owed certain responsibilities to the public as a common carrier, among which the responsibility of not allowing special privileges to any one customer was manifestly to be included. When the railroad managers have been asked why they cut their published rates and evaded the laws, they have always contended that they were forced to do so, and whatever may be thought of the plea, it cannot be lightly set aside. As we have seen, the trunk lines leading from Chicago to the coast were the result of the consolidation of local roads. After the consolidations had taken place, these companies began to compete fiercely for through freight, and the rebates were an incident in this competition. The trunk lines, in the early years of their existence, were in the position of many other American business enterprises. For the time being, they were more than competent to carry all the freight offered at competitive points. Inasmuch as there was not enough to go around, they fought mercilessly for what business there was. When a large individual shipper was prepared to guarantee them a certain amount of freight, in return for special rates, they were obliged either to grant the rates or to lose the business. Of course they submitted, and defended their submission as a measure of self-preservation. No great intelligence is required to detect in this situation the evidence of a vicious circle. The absorption of Americans in business affairs, and the free hand which the structure and ideals of American life granted them, had made business competition a fierce and merciless affair, while at the same time the fluid nature of American economic conditions made success very precarious. Every shrewd and resolute man would seek to secure himself against the dangers of this situation by means of special advantages, and the most effective of all special advantages would, of course, be special railroad rates. But a shipper such as John D. Rockefeller could obtain special rates only because the railroads were in a position similar to his own and were fighting strenuously for supremacy. The favored shipper and the railroad both excused themselves on the ground of self-preservation, and sometimes even claimed that it was just, for a large shipper to obtain better rates than a small one. This was all very well for the large shipper and the railroad, but in the meantime what became of the small shipper, whom Mr. Rockefeller was enabled to annihilate by means of his contracts with the railroad companies? 
the small shipper saw himself forced out of business because corporations to whom the state had granted special privileges as common carriers had a private interest in doing business with his bigger more daring and unscrupulous competitors of course no such result could have happened if at any point in this vicious circle of private interests there had been asserted a dominant public interest and there are several points at which such an interest might well have been intruded the circle could have been broken if for instance the granting of illegal rebates had been effectively prohibited but as a matter of fact they could not be effectively prohibited by the public authorities to whom either the railroads or the large shippers were technically responsible a shipper of oil in cleveland ohio would have a difficult time in protesting against illegal discrimination on the part of a railroad conducting an interstate business and organized under the laws of new york no doubt he could appeal to the federal government but the federal government had been for the time being disqualified by many different causes from effective interference in the first place there was to be overcome the conventional democratic prejudice against what was called centralization a tradition of local control over the machinery of transit and transportation was dominant during the early period of railroad construction the fact that the railways would finally become the all-important vehicles of interstate commerce was either overlooked or considered unimportant the general government did not interfere except when as in the case of the pacific lines its interference and assistance were solicited by private interests for a long time the idea that the federal government had any general responsibility in respect to the national transportation system was devoid of practical consequences in the end an interstate commerce law was passed in which the presence of a national interest in respect to the american system of transportation was recognized but this law like our tariff laws was framed for the benefit chiefly of a combination of local and special interests and it served little to advance any genuine national interest in relation to the railroads to be sure it did forbid rebates but the machinery for enforcing the prohibition was inefficient and during another twenty years the prohibition remained substantially a dead letter the provisions of the law forbidding rebates were in truth merely a bit of legal hypocrisy rebates could not be openly defended but the business of the country was honeycombed with them and the majority of the shippers in whose interest the law was passed did not want the prohibition enforced their influence at washington was sufficiently powerful to prevent the adoption of any effective measures for the abatement of the evil the federal interstate commerce commission unlike the local authorities would have been fully competent to abolish rebates but the plain truth was that the effective public opinion in the business world either supported the evil or connived at it the private interests at stake were for the time being too strong for the public interest the whole american business tradition was opposed to government interference with prevailing business practices and in view of this fact the responsibility for the rebates cannot be fixed merely upon the railroads and the trusts the american system had licensed energetic and unscrupulous individual aggrandizement as the best means of securing a public benefit and the rebates were merely a flagrant instance of the extent to which public opinion permitted the domination of private interests the failure of the federal government to protect the public interest in a matter over which the state governments had no effective control has greatly accelerated the organization of american industries on a national scale but for private and special purposes 
certain individuals controlling certain corporations, were enabled to obtain a decided advantage in supplying certain services and products to an enormously increasing American market, and once those individuals and corporations had obtained dominant positions, it was in their interest to strengthen one another's hands in every possible way. One big corporation has, as a rule, preferred to do business with another big corporation. They were, all of them, producing some standard commodity or service, and it is part of the economical conduct of such businesses to buy and sell so far as possible in large quantities and under long contracts. Such contracts reduce to a comparatively low level the necessary uncertainties of business. It enabled the managers of these corporations to count upon a certain market for their product, or a certain cost for part of their raw material. And it must be remembered that the chief object of this whole work of industrial organization was to diminish the hazards of unregulated competition, and to subject large business operations to effective control. A conspicuous instance of the effect of such interests and motives may be seen in the lease of the ore lands belonging to the Great Northern Railroad to the United States Steel Corporation. The railroad company owned the largest body of good ore in the country, outside of the control of the Steel Corporation, and if these lands had been leased to many small companies, the ability of the independent steel manufacturers to compete with the big steel company would have been very much increased. But the Great Northern Railroad Company found it simpler and more secure to do business with one large than a number of small companies, and in this way, the Steel Corporation has obtained almost a monopoly of the raw material, most necessary to the production of finished steel. It will be understood, consequently, how inevitably these big corporations strengthen one another's hands, and it must be added that they had political as well as economic motives for so doing. Although the big fellows sometimes indulge in the luxury of fierce fighting, such fights are always the prelude to still closer agreements. They are all embarked in the same boat, and surrounded as they are by an increasing amount of enmity, provoked by their aggrandizement, they have every reason to lend one another constant and effective support. There may be discerned in this peculiar organization of American industry an entangling alliance between a wholesome and a baleful tendency. The purpose which prompted men like John D. Rockefeller to escape from the savage warfare in which so many American businessmen were engaged was in itself a justifiable and ameliorating purpose. Competition in American business was insufficiently moderated, either by the state or by the prevailing temper of American life. No sensible and resourceful man will submit to such a precarious existence without making some attempt to escape from it, and if the means which Mr. Rockefeller and others took to secure themselves served to make the business lives of their competitors still more precarious, such a result was only the expiation which American businessmen were obliged to pay for their own excesses. The concentrated leadership, the partial control, the thorough organization thereby affected, was not necessarily a bad thing. It was in some respects a decidedly good thing, because leadership of any kind has certain intrinsic advantages. The trusts have certainly succeeded in reducing the amount of waste which was necessitated by the earlier condition of wholly unregulated competition. The competitive methods of nature have been, and still are, within limits indispensable, but the whole effort of civilization has been to reduce the area within which they are desirably effective. And it is entirely possible that in the end, the American system of industrial organization will constitute a genuine advance in industrial economy. 
large corporations which can afford the best machinery which control abundant capital and which can plan with scrupulous economy all the details of producing and selling an important product or service are actually able to reduce the cost of production to a minimum and in the cases of certain american corporations such results have actually been achieved the new organization of american industry has created an economic mechanism which is capable of being wonderfully and indefinitely serviceable to the american people on the other hand its serviceability is much diminished by the special opportunities it gives to a few individuals these opportunities do not amount in any case to a monopoly but they do amount to a species of economic privilege which enable them to wring profits from the increasing american market disproportionate to the value of their economic services what is still more unfortunate however is the equivocal position of these big corporations in respect to the laws under which they are organized and in respect to the public authorities which are supposed to control them many of the large railway and industrial corporations have reached their present size partly by an evasion or a defiance of the law their organizers took advantage of the american system of local self-government and the american disposition to reduce the functions of the federal government to a minimum they took advantage of these legal conditions and political ideas to organize an industrial machinery which cannot be effectively reached by local statutes and officials the favorable corporation laws of some states have been used as a means of preying upon the whole country and the unfavorable corporation laws of other states have been practically nullified the big corporations have proved to be too big and powerful for the laws and officials to which the american political system has subjected them and their equivocal legal position has resulted in the corruption of american public life and in the serious deterioration of our system of local government the net result of the industrial expansion of the united states since the civil war has been the establishment in the heart of the american economic and social system of certain glaring inequalities of condition and power the greater american railroad and industrial corporations control resources and conduct operations on a scale unprecedented in the economic history of the world the great american industrial leaders have accumulated fortunes for which there is no precedent on the part of men who exercise no official political power these inequalities are the result of the organization of american industry on almost a national scale an organization which was brought about as a means of escape from the intolerable evils of unregulated competition every aspect of american business methods has helped to make them inevitable and the responsibility for them must be distributed over the whole business and social fabric but in spite of the fact that they have originated as the inevitable result of american business methods and political ideas and institutions they constitute a serious problem for a democracy to face and this problem has many different aspects its most serious aspect is constituted by the sheer size of the resulting inequalities the rich men and the big corporations have become too wealthy and powerful for their official standing in american life they have not obeyed the laws they have attempted to control the official makers administrators and expounders of the law they have done little to allay and much to excite the resentment and suspicion in short while their work has been constructive from an economic and industrial standpoint it has made for political corruption and social disintegration children as they are of the traditional american individualistic institutions ideas and practices they have turned on their parents and dealt them an ugly wound 
either these economic monsters will destroy the system of ideas institutions and practices out of which they have issued or else be destroyed by them end of chapter five section two